I'm sorry, I just saw that you didn't change my intro in the... <laughs> you can't introduce yourself? I can. Look, it says, Amy, I just play games with kids and call it therapy to my colleagues. It's factually inaccurate. Okay. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is a podcast all about psychology. My name's Hunter Mulcair and I work with medically unwell people and also with eating disorders. And my name's Amy Donaldson and I work with children and adolescents mostly who have been through trauma. And we get together from time to time and talk about how psychologists think about psychological disorders, factors that cause them, and how to do therapy. And this is our 70th episode. So we are going to do something that Amy and I really like doing, which is talking about the psychological problems of fictional characters. Previously, we did an episode called Harry Potter and the Pathological Personalities, and where we talked about the personality disorders that the Hogwarts teachers and the Death Eaters had, some of the Death Eaters had. And then last year we did an episode called Diagnosing the Skywalkers, which was all about the mental health of Luke, Leia, Kylo and Ray, which was a lot of fun. This episode we're going to talk about the characters from the 1985 classic John Hughes film, The Breakfast Club. It's about five teenagers who are in detention and each have a range of issues. And the question we asked ourselves was, how would you do therapy with each one of them if they turned up in your office? Unlike the Star Wars and Harry Potter pods, which were more about formulation and diagnosis, this one we want to take it a step further and talk about the actual therapy process. We're going to give a brief impression of each character and then talk about what issues you might want to address and how you would do that as therapists. The thing is, we're both different therapists, so we part monologue, part discussion about where each of us might go in therapy because no two therapists do the same therapy. Yeah, I'm uh, quite interested in your thoughts versus mine. Yeah. Before we give a synopsis of the film and characters, just want to remind you to rate and review the show. Check out the website, twoshrinkspod.com, or if you have any comments, you can contact us on email, twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. So, synopsis, uh, released in 985, Breakfast Club, John Hughes. It's got an 89% rating of Rotten Tomatoes. It started the career of Molly Ringwald. It's got Hunter, stop. What? If we're going to do this, we need to do it right. The Breakfast Club, the archetypal movie about teenagers. A simple film, five teenagers in 1984, stuck in detention with each other and the school vice principal. It's just about them and their relationships. It's a film that shows how teenagers present a persona to the world that isn't necessarily who they are on the inside. At a time when someone's developing their own sense of self, it's common for people to try on different identities because adolescence is all about figuring out who you are as a person, separate from your parents, from your family, from the expectations that others place on you, real or imagined. The five teenagers are each struggling in their own way and are assuming everyone else has their life together. They've pigeonholed themselves and others, but want desperately to escape and to change their circumstances. In the face of an aggressive vice principal, they come together and work out they've got more in common than they realised. The characters are Claire Standish, the popular rich girl who doesn't think she belongs in detention. John Bender, who bullies the other kids and can't help but cause trouble for himself. 
the Vice Principal Richard Vernon, who is needlessly aggressive and seems locked in conflict with the students, Alison Reynolds, the 1980s emo girl who is an outsider with odd behaviour, Andy, the wrestler jock who fears his father's disappointment, and Brian, a socially awkward and highly intelligent boy, he's the youngest of the group and struggles with the pressure to achieve an A-grade average. So I'm going to start with Claire. Mm-hmm. So Claire's played by Molly Ringwald. Excuse me, sir. I think there's been a mistake. I know it's detention, but um, I don't think I belong in here. So, Amy, I thought on the surface, this young woman is, is confident. She's emotionally stable. She doesn't seem to have any major mental health issues, unlike some of the other students. But she is struggling with being caught between her two parents who... She talks about they use her to get at each other. She's entitled. She's got this thing, you know, the rules don't seem to apply to her. She got detention for cutting class mm-hmm. to go shopping. She's socially astute. She's wealthy, intelligent, pretty. She's popular. And I seem to think that this serves to give her status and affection and sort of like a, a replacement of sorts for the lack of emotion, proper emotional tension from her parents. When she's put under pressure by the other students, particularly Bender, and put into a box that someone else puts her into rather than her being in control of it, you know, and I'm thinking that whole discussion about being a prude or a slut Mm. or a tease, she looks really, really panicked, right? And she also remarks about feeling a lot of pressure socially. Is I have to do what everyone else thinks of me, that kind of thing. So without her popularity, I don't think she's got that much. Mm. And she's a bit scared of being revealed and of not being enough and of not being lovable. I think that was sort of a core thing that I started to think about with her. You grounded tonight? I don't know. My mom said I was, but my dad told me she's a blower off. It's a big party at Stubby's. Parents are in Europe. She'd be pretty wild. Yeah? Yeah, you gonna go? I doubt it. How come? Well, because if I do what my mother tells me not to do, it's because my father says it's okay. It's like this whole big monster deal. It's endless. It's a total drag. It's like any minute. Divorce. Who do you like better? What? You like your old man better than your mom? They're both screwed. No, I mean, if you had to choose between them. I don't know. Probably go live with my brother. I mean, I don't think either one of them gives a shit about me. It's like they use me just to get back at each other. So I'm not quite sure how she'd end up in therapy. Mm. So, so the thing with psychologists is you always ask someone, like, how did they get the referral? You know, what brought you to therapy today or how did you get referred? Yeah. And that often tells you quite useful information. Sometimes doesn't tell you any useful <laughs> information, I have to say. No. But um, Sometimes someone will show up and they won't know, A, that you're a psychologist, B, that they're there for therapy, see why yeah or like where <laughs> i work things. in the hospital i turn up and they're like i i didn't know the doctors have referred you yeah so I, i'm not sure that she would necessarily go to therapy on her own accord mm. you know i don't think she sees anything wrong with herself per se i think maybe you know she went with a friend who you know supporting a friend going to therapy and then got interested got mm. talking or you know maybe a parent send a you know outsourcing the emotional attachment essentially or part of like divorce proceedings yeah. or something like that yeah so I like her as an individual, like, you know, and, and I think, and I was thinking about this, that I think that's because she's reflective and intelligent, mm-hmm. you know, and I think in therapy, she'd be honest in her answers, you know, and you sort of see that throughout the course of the film, she's quite reflective. And I think so insight-based therapy would work. So that's like where you, so that's Socratic questioning, leading someone along to, 
you know, question their own thoughts and, and behaviours rather than sort of having to be directive, mm. all that kind of stuff. I, because I mean, I think she rubs people up the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> but like I, I kind of, I think I sort of understood her character quite a lot for whatever reason. My therapy goal with her would be to get to know what she likes, like what she wants to do, what is she uniquely good at. You know, here's this sort of popular girl, social status, but what does she want to pursue? Like she seems a bit aimless and a bit unhappy. Mm. And so I think therapy about trying to give her a, a foundation and direction. So, you know, you could do some goals stuff, some value stuff. You know, she's got this self-esteem, this confidence, but no competence or practical skills. Mm, like, nothing to kind of back that up. Yeah, she's over-reliant on that socialness. So, you know, I'd be wanting to practically expand and build on those on, on her identity, getting her to actually do things so that her identity is more than just being popular. Mm. So, well, what do you want to do after school? Or, you know, are you interested in doing art class after school or, or a sport or something like that? Because I think that popularity is quite hollow. Do you and think it, there would be anything that would get in the way of her doing that kind of stuff? I'm going to get to that. <laughs> so, um, I see. I think some people have a thing of like, you know, well, what if people don't like me anymore? Mm. But I think for her, I think she's she deep down for you, she's got nothing, or that she's unlovable, and I think that that's reinforced by parents not giving a shit about her. Mm. So, I think what I was saying before, like values and goals. I think that'd be pra- helpful in a practical way, but also it'd get at her self-worth through a relational approach. It'd give you something to work on, but then you could build a therapy alliance, a therapy relationship, so that when you start to get to the core self-worth stuff a bit later on, you've established a rapport that, mm. you, that, that you respect them as a client and they know that you care about them and respect them. So you'd have actual behavioral growth and you would have, built a therapy relationship if that makes sense yeah so rather t- than trying to jump in there and change things too quickly yes. before you've got the foundation and yeah. the relationship so i mean the, the classic thing in cognitive behavioral therapy is you always start with behavioral work so that's like getting them to change something in their day to day that's going to help them feel a bit better feel a bit calmer feel a bit uh, happier less stressed something like that eat three meals a day, get some better sleep, you know, work on the thing that you should do, clean the house, that mm. kind of stuff. I think there's a few things with her that you'd be mindful of not wanting to do. One of them is about not wanting to be overly impressed by popular things. Mm. I don't think that being a cold therapist to her would work. I think you'd have to be someone that, you know, you'd be politely interested in her popular stuff, but really impressed by value or growth or things that she's done behaviorally to change right so and i think you'd be wanting to set boundaries i think her dad and and probably your dad i mean (laughs) she's gone to detention he's giving her like sushi to take yeah in the 80s yeah um you know i think that there's an element of their parental boundaries aren't very good Hmm. and so i think you'd be wanting to set that up in a, in a better way better way what comes to mind for you because i'm struggling to think of what that would be Um, I know it intuitively. I think that I could imagine her doing things like showing up to a session late because she was busy talking to her friends or wanting to extend it to get out of something or those kind of pushing pushing the limits. Um, Rescheduling it. Rescheduling, deflecting the conversation away from what you should be focusing on. So some of that kind of like structuring and setting a 
boundary that you're not controlling what she does, but kind of going, well, this is actually what's okay here. Mm, yeah. And I think, you know, you didn't do the, the homework exercise. Mm. Why not? What was that about? That communicating to somebody, I care about you enough to pull you up on stuff. Mm, the sort of natural consequences. Rather than sort of a negative, punitive way. Mm. But back on to what you were talking about, I think that social pressure would be a big barrier to change. Mm. You're so conceited. You're so conceited. You're so like full of yourself. Why are you like that? I'm not saying that to be conceited. I hate it. I hate having to go along with everything my friends say. Then why do you do it? I don't know. I... You don't understand. You don't... You're not friends with the same kind of people that Annie and I are friends with. You know, you just don't understand the pressure that they can put on you. So I think you could start to try and do work with her, you know, trying to get her to do school work, get increased involvement in school work or do stuff outside of school that's not socially driven, maybe spending time with her brother or that kind of stuff. Mm. But there are people who are boxing her in, you know, and so this, there would be a barrier to any kind of progress or engagement because of her social world. So it's simultaneously a strength for her. It's social, it's protective. It, mm. it keeps her self-esteem up, but it would prevent, it would keep her locked. In that same role. Yeah. So I mean, I was talking about before, right? You know, like if she took an art class, would she be worried about how that plays out with mm. her friends? And like, I don't think you'd need to talk that through. I think she'd have difficulty holding those two identities. You know, I think that as you sort of get out of your teens and into your 20s, you develop multiple areas of your life and, and you become a much more complex and richer person. And the, the key sort of growth in that time is to be able to hold yourself as different things like as a teenager you're like the sporty guy mm. or the or the academic girl or the whatever it is but then over time it's like also oh, i do that and i go to university and i have a job and i believe you know it's yep. lots of different dimensions dimensions she ain't gonna let go of that social world easily, <laughs> no. i don't think the cost is too high yeah i mean and she talks about that you know despite bonding with all of them she says like you know monday morning i'm not gonna mm. she's like honest about it but she's like i'm not gonna talk to you guys so i thought that was really, really interesting. Um, I do have some concerns about her relationship with everybody. Mm. This social world that she's in, she's sexualized by all of the yeah. all of her peers in this film. Now, there's a really, really great article written by Molly Ringwald in The New Yorker, and we'll put a link to it. And she talks about watching the John Hughes films with her daughter. Mm. Who's, who was like 11 or something. Yeah. And so I'm just going to read a quote here. Bender sexually harasses Claire throughout the film. When not sexualizing her, he takes out his rage on her with vicious contempt and he never apologizes for any of it. But nevertheless, he gets the girl in the end. Hmm. So the other characters, that's what Bender does, yeah. right? Andy attempts to protect her virtue. Mm. Like he's sort of like defending her and kind of... Like, defending her honour, that kind of... Yeah, defending her honour, that's yeah. a good way. And then Brian intonates that he's had sex with her because he's trying to impress Bender, mm. right? And Alison bullies her about whether she's a virgin, right? Yeah. You know, have you had it? Answer the question, Claire. And so, calls her a tease. Yes, tease. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then Andy calls her a tease. You know, so yeah, they all do. Yeah. Yeah. So... Like, I guess I guess what I was really concerned about is like, she's ended up in a, an abusive relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. assuming she continues to go out with Bender, she seems like she's someone that's going to go along with what her friends want. 
and what her parents want mm. and now what Bender wants. Yeah. That's problematic. And I think also in therapy, you'd be wanting to be careful about, is she going to go along with you as a therapist? Mm. She's going to just do what you want. Yeah. Like if you build some rapport, then you go, like, oh, she's therapy's going really well. She keeps doing all the things. Isn't this great? She's my granny. Yeah. Oh, hang on. This isn't actually what she wants. This is not what she wants. Yeah. So that'd be, you'd have to play that fine line of pushing someone mm. to talk and get involved, but then also not to direct it yourself as a therapist. Exactly. Yeah. I'd really be wanting to pr- help her process what went on with Bender. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not okay. <laughs> not, not okay. I really, I really don't like Bender. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. It's really. So, um, so Bender is the bully in case you're wondering who we're talking yeah, about. It's, uh, we'll talk about next. Judd Nelson. Yeah. It's relentless and consistently sexually harasses her the entire time. At its peak, he puts his head up her skirt. It's just, it's continual the entire time. And in between him doing that, if she pushes back, then he gets aggressive with her. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I can remember even watching it as a teenager and being really disappointed by them getting together at the end and thinking like, but he's been doing this to you the entire time. Like you've been upset most of the day because of his, what he's been doing. And yet, somehow, for some reason, things have turned. I still don't quite know what happens there. Yes, I mean, I think you'd be wanting to communicate like you deserve to be feeling treated, Mm. right? With your parents, with your friends, with whoever you're dating. Yeah. And so don't just give in to someone who's abusive because you think they're a good person underneath. She's good at asserting herself. So when you get people who are in an abusive relationship, one of the things you often have to do is to, or even not an abusive relationship, just in a relationship, Mm. you have to help them with assertiveness. So assertiveness is being able to speak your mind get what you need, tell someone, I want to do this. No, I don't want to do that. And so sometimes people don't know how to say that and and have never experienced how to do that. And Mm. so one of the things you do as a therapist, you would coach them. She doesn't need coaching. No. She's very good at it. It's just that the people around her weren't listening. Mm. So, you know, my thought would be that you would be getting her to not put herself in positions where people are not listening, Mm. right? Because... The interventions she's doing are failing, but it's not because she's doing the wrong thing. She's doing the right thing, mm. which is like, no, I don't want this. No, go away. I don't. This is awful. Leave me alone. Mm. And it's just being ignored. Mm-hmm. So you'd be wanting her to kind of make good decisions around that. You know, and I think, I don't know, do you have to do that very often where you give advice to people about their relationships? Uh, I think with, with teenagers, it's interesting because that dynamic or young people coming to see me and going like, I hate it that this person does these things to me, but you know, I'm in love with them. So I, I'm just going to stay with them or whatever it might be. I think as a, when it's teenagers, you have a little bit more scope to prod a bit, to do a bit of education about relationships and how they can go guide in a way that a parent might. Mm. Whereas with an adult, I think it's harder to do yeah. that sometimes. Yeah. Cause I think the, the, as a therapist, it's problematic if you're telling people who, you know, you shouldn't go out with this person, exactly. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I think that's problematic because it takes you from being a therapist to something other than a therapist. Mm. But I do think that if you, if the therapy is about relationships, so I keep having problems with in relationships, mm. then the way you would tackle it is like, well, this, this relationship that you are starting sounds a bit like some of the other ones you've been in. Mm. So do you want to continue with that or... Or if you're going to continue with it, what are you going to need to do to not fall into the same traps? Mm. 
sort of upskilling people in how they could respond to things yeah. if they go that way. Because yeah. because listeners, you will you will notice that you will often have the same problems in relationships across different people. Yeah. Or you'll be always attracted to the same kind of guy or the same kind of girl. Yeah. And you'll be attracted to different types of guys and girls, but that there's certain types that you got you're really attracted to that actually always cause you a lot of problems. Yeah. Right. And so those are the ones you should steer clear of. So that they might be a chaotic person, mm. they might be overly emotional, they might be overly withdrawn. Mm. And for whatever reason you are drawn to them. Yeah. Right. But those relationships always you know, they fail for you or something. So, mm. you know, that's where psychologists would kind of come into. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think the, 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 just finishing off with Claire, there's a thing we haven't really touched on, which would be about our parents. You know, mm. I think that'd be something you'd be really interested to getting her to talk about. It might actually be something she might be willing to talk about. She might be insightful enough to kind of to have some good conversations with about, you know, well, what's it like to be in the middle? Mm. Where does that leave you? You know, you seem a bit lonely. You seem a bit unhappy. Yeah. Tackling it that way. Hmm. Sounds like a good plan. So we're going to go to Bender. Yes. Your least favourite. Yeah. Tell us about him. Yes. So John Bender's played by Judd Nelson. Any questions? Yeah. I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? John is one of the older teens who's labelled the criminal in their little introduction. He arrives alone at school, dressed in multiple layers of mismatched cheap clothes. He's carrying a switchblade, has weed in his locker, and he has no food for lunch. He has this intense gaze, rarely smiles, and frequently shouts throughout the movie. Interpersonally, John is dominant and aggressive. His initial interactions with the principal and other students are confrontational, often without any provocation. In a school environment, he'd be termed oppositional. John's behaviour and speech seems to be focused on antagonising others and creating conflict. He constantly monitors dynamics in the room, reads people well, and then hits out at things that are raw for them. John's insecure about being less than the others. He makes comments about being less privileged, less cared for, less a part of the school, less important. Rather than try and prove that he's not, John leans into these, behaving in a way that perpetuates the image. Each one of his outbursts, attacks on others, or reckless behaviour is prefaced by a conversation about someone else's position or about him not mattering. In moments of vulnerability, like after acting out his parents or being threatened by the principal in the cupboard, John's presentation changes. He appears younger and like a frightened child. Mm. He withdraws, he becomes still, makes himself physically small and he winces. John's behaviour serves a function. It wears people out, makes them not bother with him, give people the shit so they don't try. It's protective, but it's unlikely to be seen by most people in this way. Before we talk about therapy for John, I want to play a clip where he acts out what his home life is like. It's pretty intense, but it shows us what he goes through day to day. What about your family? Oh, mine? Yeah. It's real easy. Stupid, worthless, no good, goddamn freeloading son of a bitch, retarded, big mouth, know-it-all asshole jerk. Forgot ugly, lazy, and disrespectful. Shut up, bitch! Who fucks me turkey pot pie? What about you, Dad? Fuck you. No, Dad. What about you? Fuck you! No, Dad! What about you? Fuck you! Is that for real? You want to come over sometime? 
I'd say that John's presentation's pretty common for adolescent boys with trauma histories or violence at home. He yeah. reminds me of a lot of my teenage male clients. And so I'm going to weave together his behavior and then how we'd respond to it therapeutically so that you can see how it makes sense. I think a lot of the time when you're watching this movie, the audience has a strong reaction to him of like, can you just shut up or why are you treating people like that? Or it's kind of, you want to push him away mm. in very much in the way that I think people around him would as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I really, I really don't like this character. I really didn't it's just always baffled me and I think people liking this character mm. i always just i struggle with i never never understood it yeah still don't yeah i think i i have mixed feelings towards him i'm not okay with any of his behavior at all but then also i think those moments of vulnerability and the moments where you see him telling himself off or feeling shame gives me an indication that he's not behaving that way because he thinks it's the right thing to do like you can see him do stuff and then kind of look down and look ashamed at what he's done like why did i do that and i think that gives me a little bit of empathy you reckon he does i don't know yeah yeah even after like the principal's interaction he leaves and then he just kind of like swears to himself yeah but i think he's realized he's done something like he screwed himself up Uh i don't think that that's necessarily (laughs) we'll get to it (laughs) okay Um, but I think that that gets, to the, that gets to the difficulty of what you would do with someone like him if they got referred. So how mm. would he get referred? Tell me how he'd get referred. Most commonly with teenagers like this, it's that a parent or a teacher will say, I can't cope with you anymore. That's it. You know, someone needs to fix you. Usually it's like end of the line. They've mm-hmm. often had a lot of discipline stuff and often they're literally dumped at my office with a he's hopeless like you're the last resort if this doesn't work then mm-hmm. that's it yeah. kicking him out he's going to be expelled whatever it might be what it means is that it's a barrier to engaging in therapy because for them it's another punishment it's another you have to go here because you're a problem rather than this is someone who could help you mm. so you already start the interaction with a bit of an aggressive dynamic mm-hmm. and a feeling of not wanting to be there and so the main thing that you want to do at the start is to set things up so that it's not something that feels punitive and to be pushed back against and so the way that I tend to do that is that say it's a family member that's brought them in mm-hmm. I'll do stuff to clarify that the teenager is my client not the parents so I'll do lots of stuff about setting up around confidentiality that therapy is about working on what the teenager wants that we'll decide together what's shared with the parents unless there are particular risk things everything that sets it up as a therapeutic relationship between us Mm -hmm. and that they can talk about what they want with me but i'm not following the parents agenda and often the parents don't like that (laughs) because they've brought the teenager there to for you to sort it out and i guess their parent their parent not liking that could get you on side a little bit exactly yeah Yeah. and what they realize after a few sessions and a bit of explaining things in front of them whatever is that for things to change that therapeutic relationship has to be there otherwise the teenager isn't going to change so Mm. actually the parent ends up getting what they want just not in the way that they think that they will Mm. yeah you don't do the uh, google hunting (laughs) silent stare off fall asleep in this in the second or third session sometimes i'll sit there quietly <laughs> so i've had some sessions where it's just silent but yeah yeah so with john i think that there are two parts to it there's the relationship side of things that i'll get to and then there's a bit of understanding that underneath most of his behavior is a trauma response yeah which is hyper arousal 
So fight flight. So any time that he's provoked, he either runs away or he shouts, punches, attacks. We don't see him going the other way of sort of shutting off particularly, but we see him do that and freezing. And so to get some movement, we're going to need to be able to take the edge off that before we can get anywhere. Otherwise, as soon as we get close to any therapeutic content, he's going to flip out. So what do you do? So we do stuff about rhythms one way so often i'll get them to bring in music and we'll just sit there and listen to whatever music they like Mm -hmm. um every now and then they'll say something to me bender i've noticed throughout plays fiddles with stuff and so i'd want to have stuff on the table or around the place that he could play with and break because he breaks stuff and he scrunches things up he rips pages out of books whatever sort of energy exactly so i'd want to have things on the table that didn't matter if they broke. Food is another thing. He doesn't eat through the entire thing. So this would be a kid where I would kind of go, oh, I forgot to eat lunch today. I'm just gonna have some popcorn. Did you want some? Hurl a bag of popcorn at them and sit there and often they'll eat because that'll help bring his arousal down as well. And ideally a large room or outside somewhere where there's space if they wanna move. Yeah. So all of those things and Often things like snacks or whatever will get you buy-in as a therapist or saying you can bring music, I've got a speaker, play whatever you want, gets you a bit of buy-in with kids like this who aren't used to people meeting them on their, their terms. terms. Yeah. Usually it's like, well, you can't listen to that, that music's stupid, etc. So that would be the first step and then it would be working on the relationship side of things. And so relationship-wise, I want to play a clip of him and Claire. It's a scene where they're sitting there, it's after they've gotten stoned and they're looking through one another's stuff. Are all these your girlfriends? Some of them. What about the others? Well, some I consider my girlfriends and some I just consider. Consider what? Whether or not I want to hang out with them. You don't believe in just one guy, one girl? Do you? Yeah. That's the way it should be. Not for me. Why not? How come you got so much shit in your purse? How come you have so many girlfriends? I asked you first. I don't know. I guess I never threw anything away. Neither do I. What I like about that clip is that it's one of the rare times where he's sort of regulated emotionally in the film. And her approach to him is actually quite similar to what I would do if I was the therapist. I wouldn't be making eye contact. I'd be quite sort of laid back in my questions. I notice that when she gets too close to things, he sort of, there's a little bit of anger and irritation there and then he deflects. I'd want to let him do a bit of that and then bring it back up again. Um, And I also feel like she's letting him go through her stuff and he's brushing his teeth with her eyebrow brush. Uh, but she's letting things go a little bit for the payout of the conversation and I think it reminded me a lot of how I approached things with a teenager that I worked with who would routinely break stuff in my office and part of setting boundaries was that I would let him break things and because of the relationship that we had he would only break things that were fixable by the end of the session (laughs) and he would then fix them by the end of the session and I never specified that It was just that, you know, I raised an eyebrow one day when he broke something 
when he was annoyed at me and then from that point onwards he'd then you know take apart paper clips and then reform them by the end of the session yeah. or rip up a piece of paper that had nothing on it and then pack it all into a bin before the end mm. so ways of like allowing a little bit of chaos but within a boundary yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and i think that even though it doesn't sound like much often that relational thing and bringing down the hyper arousal can be enough to disrupt all of those relational things that he's doing otherwise starting fights the harassing people being dismissive and apathetic having a space where that's different starts to give him a chance to test it out yeah and see what it would be like to be different yeah because because i listen to that and i think surely that won't wouldn't be enough yeah but then i think about other therapy i've done where i haven't talked about a whole lot of things that are going on for somebody and clearly works it's and i think particularly for teenagers like this who have never had an adult listen to them Mm. and never had an adult set limits that are reasonable and with warmth that can be life-changing yeah and i guess what you're talking about there is sitting on your hands as Mm -hmm. a therapist yeah right so one of the mistakes that a lot of therapists make is being too keen Mm. to get into a problem yeah and often you can see that there's something going on that would be great to talk about but that's not what the client needs at that point Mm. and it's really hard not to go well let's just talk about your family so what else would you do with this chat those would be the two main things that I would start with and that would take ages. <laughs> <laughs> I think once you've got the relationship, you can then go into stuff about you know, what he wants, how he's going to keep himself out of trouble to get what he wants and that's often the perspective that I would take it with someone like that first yep. rather than what you're doing hurts other people of a, okay, so you're shitty that you've had to, you have to spend two months in detention. What what can you work out that's actually going to mean that you don't have to do stuff like that in the future? Yeah. I mean, that's irritating. Yeah. Cause I, 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 I would, I would sort of, what happened there mm. if you got into that situation again? So, you know, yeah. I don't want to tell you what to do, but that doesn't sound like that was really good for you. No. And I wonder if you get into that situation again, like what was going on for you and he just makes it worse and worse for himself. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's trying to be, he's portraying that he's strong. Mm. Whereas I think, you know, you could be like, well, you know, okay, you're angry and you're cross there. And, you know, are you really making the best decision for yourself? Yeah. And I think what often happens with teenagers like this, if they've got the trauma stuff going on, people can jump into that side of things too quickly and miss the bit that, yes, even though, you know, he must be 17 or something he isn't actually able to rationalize until he's calmed his nervous system down first. And so any instructions of like, oh, you know, just pull your head in, isn't actually going to work. So basically like, so, okay, so you're in that situation that's going on. First thing you need to do is calm yourself down. And the main thing that teenage boys choose in that, like in the calming them down thing is tapping their feet backwards and forwards pretty much universally that's what they pick and doing that for a bit is enough to then just yeah and this is why him getting stoned exactly he's self-medicating yeah right like he talks about his trauma stuff then he goes off and gets stoned yeah right or you know causes and stuff a bit later than his stone and his karma exactly yeah it's interesting yeah Shall we move on to the next? Yeah my least favorite (laughs) the principal vice principal Richard Vernon Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you for being on time. Middle-aged man repeatedly bullying students, his anger getting the better of him, humiliates himself because of it Mm. multiple times. He's got an anger problem, but it goes beyond that. 
it's not just the teachers cracking it and throwing a duster at somebody. There's a nastiness to it. Mm. Something's a bit broken in this man or is getting to the breaking point. He locks Bender in the closet with a key, threatens him with physical violence, verbally abusive. Mm. He's got a sense of entitlement and arrogance. I should be treated with respect yeah. is the vibe. He's got fragile self-esteem. This is a clip of him and Bender going toe-to-toe. What was that? Eat my shorts. You just bought yourself another Saturday, mister. Oh, crushed. You just bought one more right there. Well, I'm free the Saturday after that. Beyond that, I'm going to have to check my calendar. Good, because it's going to be filled. We'll keep going. You want another one? Say the word. Just say the word. Instead of going to prison, you'll come here. Are you through? No. I'm doing society a favor. So? That's another one right now. I've got you for the rest of your natural-born life if you don't watch your step. You want another one? Yes. You got it. You got another one right there. That's another one, pal. Cut it out. You through? Not even close, bud. Good. You got one more right there. You really think I give a shit? Another. You through? How many is that? That's seven, including the one when we first came in. You asked Mr. Vernon here whether Barry Manilow knew that he raided his closet. Now it's eight. You stay out of it. Excuse me, sir. It's seven. Shut up, Pee Wee. So I'm imagining he gets referred for stress and frustration relating to his job. He's pushed into it by his doctor. His blood pressure is too high, or his wife, if he's got one. There's another scenario where he gets a court order for therapy because he was charged for abusing students, but. No one's going to believe Ben. I don't see mandated clients, so we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> That's also a benefit. Uh, I think there'd be a lot of just getting this guy to vent, mm-hmm. um, taking him seriously about the stresses he faces, empathising about him being a teacher and that it's tough. I think he'd speak in generalities so they, and that'd just be completely useless in therapy. So what I mean by that is you just talk about like work was stressful, you know, which bit was stressful. You'd have to push hard for detail mm. and what goes on. And you said, what actually happened last Saturday in detention? Assessment wise, I'd want to do a proper structured assessment of disorders, <laughs> right? Depression, generalized anxiety, anger problems, substance use. I think clinically that'd be useful, but I th- what I'd be doing there is demonstrating I'm a professional. I take things seriously. Mm. Oh, I see, I see this I see this therapist who takes me seriously. Yeah. You know, because he's wanting to be taken seriously. But also that you're not going to let things slip. So as a therapist, I'm making space for what he wants to talk about, but I'm the one in charge mm. with this guy. And, that uh, you know, what he has to talk about. I'll be nice about it, but because you'd be laying the groundwork to challenge him later on, mm. right? And for him to be vulnerable later on. Yeah. So it's like the reverse of what you would do with Bender, right? Yeah. I'm super curious what his non-work life is like. Like, what's going on? How can you be at school on a Saturday, 7 till 4 p.m.? For two months that he's planned with Bender. (laughs) I mean, it's not not like he's actually doing any work. No. You know, he ends up having beers with a janitor. And does he have relationships out of school, hobbies? What's he, like, doing? Hmm. It's got the inappropriate calendar on the wall, but there's no other... The 80s, probably. Yeah, probably. Um... There's no other indication of any life outside school, is no, my point. The key therapeutic act with getting him to put into words what's making him angry hmm. and then to probe what's underneath. Anger can be about anxiety, and he says that that's one of the things, but it's also going to be about depression, and the janitor picks up on this. Hmm. Why does he want respect? Why is he sensitive to it? He 
I think he's miserable. Is that because he's being burnt out and no longer respect himself? Is it because of these out-of-work issues being played out at school? Is there guilt and shame operating somewhere? Hmm. What did you want to be when you were young? When I was a kid, I wanted to be John Lennon. Carl, don't be a goof. I'm trying to make a serious point here. Carl, I've been teaching for 22 years. And each year, these kids get more and more arrogant. Oh, bullshit, man. Come on, Vern. The kids haven't changed. You have. <sighs> you took a teaching position because you thought it'd be fun, right? Thought you could have summer vacations off. And then you found out it was actually work. That really bummed you out. These kids turned on me. They think I'm a big fucking joke. Come on. Listen, Vern, if you were 16, what would you think of you, huh? Hey, Carl. You think I give one rat's ass what these kids think of me? Yes, I do. You think about this. When you get old, these kids, when I get old, they're going to be running the country. Yeah. Now, this is the thought that wakes me up in the middle of the night. That when I get older, these kids are going to take care of me. I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> Shoots him straight. Yeah. And, and in this film, you see the characters acting as like therapists. Mm. There's a lot of therapy material that yeah. the other characters say, which I think is what drew us to this film. You know, this guy, he seems a bit unlikable, but I'd want to know what he likes and dislikes, how he got into it, why has he stayed in it. These seem like obvious questions, but asking directly might start to break his static wave, thinking about himself in the world. He, he's locked in this battle for control mm. at school, which is failing because the students rebel. He gets angry and doubles down on it. Mm. Like it's a losing scenario. And there will always, always be teenagers rebelling. Like that's what teenagers do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so therapy, I'd be wanting to help him recognize the damage that the anger is doing to his life and to others. Right? I'd, might, I'd label it as stress is probably what I would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe use a questionnaire, talk about that, blah, blah, blah. And I'd wanting to pick out how it's impacting him and labeling it as one thing, stress, depression, whatever. And I'd probably do a mindfulness exercise at the end of the first session. So he walks out experiencing relief. Mm-hmm. Right, So he goes, okay, that was... Useful. Something changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he'd be he'd be annoyed that he was there. Yeah. Uh, or he'd be disbelieving of it. So you'd want to nail <laughs> you'd want to nail the uh, the mindfulness exercise. Mm-hmm. I think motivation to change with him would be really really important. He's fixed on the students need to respect me more, which would be not a good goal to attempt <laughs> no. in therapy. Uh, I'd be wanting to point out the impact on life hmm. that his mood stress has. Right, and that changing it. So you got into an argument with a student today and you've given him eight Saturdays of detention. Is that a good outcome for you? Hmm. You know, how do others think about the fact that you're now got eight weeks of detention with this kid yeah. because he disrespected you? Hmm. How does that play out? Yeah. You know, you'd be wanting to shoot that and maybe be doing it in a firmer way or a gentler way, I'm not sure. There is an ACT exercise. Now, <laughs> listeners to the pod might have picked up that. <laughs> I'm going to need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners to the pod might know that I, I'm... Uh, often a little bit scathing about act stuff. A little? I think I think I actually edit it out most of the time on the pod. Um, but so act acceptance commitment therapy, but there is an exercise 
where what you do to help people recognize the impact of what's going on for them mm. and that, that maybe changing what they do is helpful, that you get them to hold a book or a folder and you say, look, this is, this is your feelings about school mm-hmm. and now I want you to hold it in front of your face. And they go, okay, like what? And you go, all right, so can, can you see much beyond it? No, no, I can just see this. And it's like, can you interact with anything? No. And you go, okay. All right, so most people when they've got stress, they want to, they try and push it away. So you, can you hold this out as far as you can? And go, okay, so what's that like? It's like, well, it's fine. And then you go, well, let's hold it there for a while. What happens to your arms? Oh, they're getting tired. Hmm. What if you did this all the time? Uh, well, it's difficult to do anything. And then, you know, you talk about like, well, what would happen if you just let those feelings sit on your lap mm-hmm. and not fight it? And so you would then describe, all right, so our relation, our therapy approach is about changing your relationship with these, this stress, with these feelings about work. So it's like when these come up, do you have to interact with it? Do you have to respond to the fact that the students are disrespecting you? What's a different way of responding? And mm. the, the other side of that is that you would be wanting to, to get him to reconnect with values outside of work that are important to him joyful meaningful things values about being a good role model and being angry would clash Mm. and so you know you'd be going well that doesn't seem to fit so how could we change that maybe anger maybe being angry at school is not such a good thing for you yeah you know you could do like anger management classic anger management stuff Mm -hmm. you know like well when is it you're getting angry at school you know, let's do some calming exercises or let's work out the triggers and let's work out what's going on for you there. That's a classic sort of CBT, challenging thoughts, that kind of stuff. Does it matter that they don't have respect 100% of the time? Does their behaviour now mean that they won't actually be able to run a country? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and I think you'd be, have a mindset of wanting to push back on things that he says. Hmm. So, you know, that doesn't really sound like that's appropriate. Is it normal for a teacher to lock a student in a storage closet? If you found another teacher threatening students what would happen hmm. i mean i think one day you'd um you'd have to report you <laughs> yeah yeah but if it was occurring now you would have to yeah, yeah. But also i think you know you would need to know his his history because you could trigger shame hmm. right and he could uh, emotionally break down in therapy or he you would lose him out of therapy because hmm. if you trigger a big shame reaction in somebody they'll never come back yeah you know, you could adopt an existential approach. You know, what does he want bigger picture down the track? He can't see the wood for the trees. Mm. So he's an unlikable individual. He is. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there's lots of ways in which you could actually work with him. Mm. Which would probably be good for everyone around him as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely. So we're going to go to Alison now. Is that right? That's right. So Alison, played by Ali Sheedy. I'm not a nymphomaniac. I'm a compulsive liar. Alison is termed the basket case of yep. the group. She's watchful, she's withdrawn, she avoids eye contact, hides her face with messy hair, hunches over and wears dark baggy clothes at the start of the film. And for the first half of the film, her behaviour is pretty unusual. She speaks with bursts of noises and squeaks, no words, bites her nails loudly and spits one of them at Bender at one point. She uses her dandruff in her drawing and she makes a sandwich by squishing dry cereal and sugar into the bread with her hand. The others laugh uncomfortably or look disgusted whenever she does one of these things. As she slowly opens up, her verbal tics disappear, but she makes unusual facial expressions and demonstrates inconsistent eye contact throughout. It's like she's kind of uncomfortable and doesn't know quite how to respond. Mm. She seems to self-soothe with physical sensations. I noticed she was wrapping herself up in her clothes, hides under a hood on the desk, 
the nail biting. She wraps a thread around her finger to cut off the circulation. And then she lies and steals throughout but isn't subtle about it. She's not wanting to fly under the radar. I get the feeling she's saying with her behaviour, try harder, that she wants other people to make more of an effort with her and she's providing these kind of clumsy openings mm. for them to interact. There's a bit where she yells, ha! Yeah. Right, like, it's like, like, like what is that? What is that? Yeah. And then she doesn't follow it up with anything. Yeah. It's just silent. So interpersonally, she's inconsistent and fearful. Despite this, it's obvious that she desperately wants connection and she seeks this out most commonly with Andy. She watches his reactions, smiles to herself at his behaviour and initiates conversations with him. To me, her behaviour seems like disorganised attachment. And so I want to play a clip before we talk about this. It comes just after she's made her first effort to share something with the group. She feels mocked by the boys and has stormed off. You want to talk? No. Why not? Go away. Where do you want me to go? Go away! You have problems. Oh, I have problems. You do everything everybody ever tells you to do. That is a problem. Okay, fine. But I didn't dump my purse out on the couch and invite people into my problems. Did I? So what's wrong? What is it? Is it bad? Real bad? Parents? What they do to you? They ignore me. Yeah. Thoughts? So, so in that, you don't get it with the audio, but that she she looks very nervous, but she's not pushing. She sort of sounds like she's pushing away, but he's she's not. She's sort of watchful of him, Andy, mm. the jock who's talking. And he, as I will talk about, he's, he's got his own issues with his parents. So I think that that's why he's able to connect with her, mm. you know, and I think she's, what's sort of interesting is he's patient, puts some stuff out there and then she sort of just agrees with it, mm. you know, and then that's enough to form a bond. Yeah. I, I found it interesting that in that one scene, you see the different aspects that you see when someone has a disorganized attachment, you know, she has approached just before and then she's withdrawn and then she tries to push him away and then when he walks away she attacks to try and bring him back yeah and then she connects it's this kind of inconsistent trying absolutely everything to make that connection but mm. it's not quite it's working like it's it, disjointed it is classically you know like disorganized is such a great way because it, it, there's no sort of common thread to it no you know except for the fact that she's trying to engage but doesn't really know what to do with it, doesn't know how to do it. The Andy character is just sort of predictable. Yeah. 
and it's quite amazing given that he's a teenage boy with his own stuff that he actually does come back over and does try multiple times Hmm. you know he keeps on trying to make that connection even though she is being incredibly erratic you can see Hmm. other kids would have just walked away or not tried to follow up oh i don't know about that (laughs) you don't reckon like Brian doesn't follow it. Maybe it speaks to me, my yeah, personality. I think but yeah, so. Yeah. Like the others don't try and ask her about things when she goes off. Mm. They let her go. Mm. Um, whereas he holds. He mm. stays even though... But she's deliberately trying to engage him. She's yeah. not trying to engage anyone else. No, but there's no... I think there's something different about how he responds. Yeah, so we know things aren't good for Alison at home. She describes it as unsatisfying just before that clip and she says that when you grow up your heart dies and that her parents ignore her we don't know the extent of the neglect at home we can assume that it's emotional we don't know whether it's physical as well we don't know whether they're distant or volatile but what we do see is that then it plays out in how she tries to form relationships Mm. i bring this up because it's relevant for therapy so there's those same dynamics are likely to play out with a therapist she's likely to push pull to get aggravated Mm. to shut it down to not show up some weeks to show up early other times i can see her just showing up at your office at different points and then going oh it's nothing never mind yeah leaving um and so i think the therapist that i'd want for her would be someone who was consistent and warm and willing to listen to the whole story Mm. regardless of how much truth was in it Mm. and Going with her on that. Yeah, so the big piece of her is she's a compulsive liar yeah. throughout it. Yeah, exactly. And, and and has fun with it. Yeah. And I think that there's a fine line between, you know, not buying into the lies, but then not challenging them too much either. Mm. So sort of being curious, but yeah. not calling her a liar because then she'll run away. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think it like she, you'd be wanting to be a, yeah. a steady drumbeat. Exactly. Uh, that was always not extreme in your reactions, mm. right? You'd have reactions like, this is not actually the time that we were meant to be doing, but I can see for a little bit. Mm. You didn't come last week. What was that about? Okay, let's talk about these things. Oh, geez, that sounds like a strange thing that happened, like yeah. to a lie. You know, you, you'd have some gentle, you'd be gentle, you'd be signaling stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I certainly have worked with a, a young girl who was not quite as overtly chaotic like this this young lady but you know and my therapy approach was actually really really just gentle and predictable Mm. i'm not sure i could tell you what we did in (laughs) sessions but there was a marked change Mm. in this in this young lady who by all accounts shouldn't have been able to maintain a relationship with a male therapist yeah yeah so and i think that that's that's what you'd be doing yeah exactly that being stable despite being tested yeah because i can imagine her testing out the limits of things a fair bit and therapy interventions so therapy priority wise i think the first one is the relationship but then there are a couple of things that i would like to talk about relationally for her so i think that if we assume that you know by the end of the film her and andy have hooked up Mm. if we assume that they're going to continue having some sort of contact with one another then he's likely to be introducing her to people Mm -hmm. And she's likely to have a broader amount of social contact than what she has now. She says that she has no friends. And so I think that a lot of what she would be wanting to do in therapy would be around social stuff. 
I think a lot of it would be about talking about those new experiences, figuring out what to do, figuring out when things went wrong. I think that's what she would bring Mm -hmm. because it would be entirely new for her. In terms of the stealing, shall we play a clip? Her middle name is Ralph, as in puke. Your birth date's March 12th. You're five, nine and a half. You weigh 130 pounds. And your social security number is 049-380913. Wow. Are you psychic? No. Would you mind telling me how you know all this about me? I stole your wallet. Give it to me. No. Give it. This is great. You're a thief, too, huh? I'm not a thief. Multi-talented. Sort to steal. Two bucks and a beaver shot. <laughs> what? He's got a nudie picture on there. I saw it. It's perverted. What I think's interesting about her stealing is that it's not subtle. You know, there are different points throughout the movie where, say, like, Bender stabs his blade, blade yeah. into the bench. They're all staring at him. <laughs> and she just pulls it it's out and pockets gag, it. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or they're all at his locker and she just pockets his lock. Yeah. And in which that, would be useless. Which would be useless. Yeah. You can tell from her bag that she's got a whole bunch of stuff in there that isn't hers. She steals his wallet and then shows him that she's got it. It's, so what would you do with it? Well, it's a way of making connection. Mm-hmm. And so I think that often when I have clients who steal, they will also steal from my office, uh, which is always an interesting one as a therapist. But with a young person like that, often they'll bring it back the next week and they won't tell you. They'll put it on the shelf or they'll you'll get to the point where they'll take something from your office, I won't comment on it, and halfway out to the waiting room, they'll take it out of their pocket and kind of go, oh, I think this is yours. I must have put it in my pocket by accident. And then you slowly phase out the behaviour by building connection in other ways. And so I think for her, you know, you can raise it and you can talk about it, but actually, again, it's about the connection. My concern is is that as she's broadening out and is under stress with Andy, Mm. just in... You know, building new relationships is stressful when you've been disconnected. That then she'll do stuff like that or she'll lie or things like that and then she'll be rejected by the group. Mm. Or that it will go the other way. You know, we see at the end of the movie that Claire makes her over to look like Claire and I can see her pretending to be like that and then still remaining, you know, it's a positive that she's connecting with other people but... She's connecting as someone who isn't herself. Mm-hmm. And is that an extension of her lying? So, so what I'm curious about as you talk about this, like you got yeah. to build connection, blah, 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 blah. But like, I'm like, but what are you actually doing in therapy? Like if you were my student, mm-hmm. I'd be like, so what are you, okay, you're building connection, but like what's actually going on? What are you actually doing? Yeah. Like I think, you know, maybe that speaks to more my CBT based training, mm. but. I'd be very curious to, like, I'd be putting you under the microscope. Well, I think that like Bender, she needs the stable relationship, like what you were talking about with your client, that mm. she needs that. I, When I mentioned the social stuff, I think that she would bring the content to therapy and that with teenagers often it's like so problem solving do? and working through yeah, right. a social interaction of kind of going, that didn't go quite how you thought. Let's let's work it through. What do you think they were thinking then? And then how did you feel? And then yep. what happened next? Yep. That real pulling it apart that... What do they call it? They call it in DBT, like chain analysis? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, so things like that where it was sort of 
yeah, helping her to develop her social skills. I think with the sense of self stuff and with feeling like she could be connected as herself, then it would be wanting to develop who that actually is. Yeah, so, so, so just to take a step back, listeners, like, so what Amy's talking about there is that if you've had a, that why the connection is important is that someone who's got a disorganized attachment, their, their, their relationship with their parents has been disjointed, it's neglectful, they ignore her, is that they don't, growing up, have a chance to the safe space to talk through mm. social interactions or experience normal social interactions, yeah. quote unquote normal interactions. And so it's all anxiety provoking and worrying and complicated and difficult to work out. Whereas, you know, sometimes what you do as a therapist is you go, okay, so A happened and then B happened and C happened and D happened and E happened. Mm. You felt one, two and three yeah. during these things. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And that can be if you're got if you're disordered mm. or if you have problems in that domain uh, social anxiety uh, borderline personality other kind of problems then that process is actually you're laying a foundation mm. for, for how someone can analyze something in a way that is going to be helpful for them yeah so, so that they don't jump to conclusions we go, oh, hang on, I'm jumping to the conclusions. What does my therapist say? This is okay, so A to B to C. You know, okay, cool. All right, so maybe I don't need to... I'm still mm. having the response, but maybe I don't need to steal that girl's purse. Mm. Yeah, and often Whatever. it's about helping them think up other options, like a range of options. So not just a formulaic, when someone does this, then I do this. Yep. But like, well, these are the list of ways that I could engage with someone these are the list of ways that I could start a conversation or whatever it might be so that you help them build that flexibility and responding to what's actually happening in the moment because she seems to be pretty overwhelmed by social interactions and in a in that real conflicted way that happens with disorganized attachment of wanting a connection but then also finding them scary yeah. and shutting off so I can I talk about the makeover yeah so because we have different views on the makeover. Well, mm, <laughs> I don't know. Like there are some... So at the end of the film, Claire interacts with her mm-hmm. and gives her a makeover, right? So like, and she comes out and then she kisses Andy or Andy like kisses her. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of played as this good moment, right? I think that, like all the kids kiss in front of their parents' car. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Which which just does not feel wow. like Wow. Yeah. Like that's like No. Imagine pulling up to pick up your kid Saturday afternoon, they've been in detention mm. and they're passing some other random kid who they met at detention. You'd be like, What the yeah. F anyway? What happened today? <laughs> Those parents are just like, What the f- Oh my god. Um anyway, but sort of stepping back a bit, like there are some really obvious feminist critiques <laughs> yes. that you could make about that stuff. Yep. From a behavioural perspective, mm. it's showing her interacting in a new way with people. Yeah. Which it's in a way that's quote unquote more socially accepted, mm. right? So it's more within that school social system, yep. right? So there are a lot of problems with that, mm. like what you were saying, which is that she might, she might start acting like a mini Claire, right? Yeah. Yeah, like so... And whilst that might look like to the broader system, like she's improved, mm. it would be a false improvement. Because it would be a internal disconnection. Yeah. yeah. And also it's a too marked change. 
Yeah. Know, like, but as a therapist, though, mm. looking for change. So therapists are always in the market for change. Yeah. Good change, bad change. Change is where things are at. Yeah. Right. So patient doing well in drug and alcohol treatment and then has a lapse. Mm. Like, like, so, you know, they got drunk on the weekend after a couple of weeks being abstinent. That's actually really, really useful moment to learn some skills and kind of do some stuff. Mm. So that's a bad change. Whereas good change is kind of like, I tried something new and it went okay. Yeah. You know, or I tried something new and didn't go so good, but I tried something Gave new. Gave it a go. Yeah. You know, so the way I would look at it mm. as a therapist, if she was my client, I'd be like, okay, so you allow this to happen? Yeah. And like, what was that like for you? And, you know, she's looking tentative. She doesn't bolt. And I think probably what you'd be wanting to, what, the way I'd be wanting to handle it is, you know, I wouldn't want to be coming across all judgments like, well, do you really want to be a mini Claire? And, you know, this is the, this is the feminist critique of it, blah, blah, blah. Like that, that wouldn't be your role as a therapist, no. right? You'd be wanting to be informed by that. Mm. But I think you'd be, I think the way I would handle it is be like, so what was that like for you? Mm. Do you think you want to keep doing that? Or which bits of that was good for you? Yeah. Which bits were scary? And then tell me about that and how, and let's talk about it, that if you could do that in other areas of your life mm. and sort of trusting the individual, you know, trusting your relationship with the individual to maybe down the track kind of go, you know, is this working for you later on? Yeah. I think that's how I would play yeah. it. Yeah. Because I think I'd be wanting her to ideally find a midpoint. Like a point between shut off from everyone and then entirely complying with what someone else mm. wants. And and I think, you know, there are opportunities in... We're never happy as therapists, are we? No, we're not. <laughs> in that interaction. Say, oh, she's made a big change. No, it's no, too big a change. Sorry. Too big a change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's not, yeah, authentically connecting. Yeah. I, I think it's like it's a really tricky one, but that element of going, well, she could present in a way that's more open she could make more eye contact she could have her hair off her face whatever and still be herself mm. and i think that's that's the thing that i would want to explore of do you actually have to hand over who you feel like you are because she protests a bit she kind of says you know i like the black shit that i put on my eyes and i kind of think that i would warm far more to that moment and I would feel far less worried about it as a therapist or if she kept those aspects of herself and just tried making eye contact pushing her hair back you know mm. some sort of midpoint of like holding who she is at the same time as trying something new yeah. it feels like a surrendering herself yeah, yeah. but yeah, like you say therapists are never happy <laughs> <laughs> all right shall we talk about Andy okay let's talk about Andy so and thanks for sticking with us so long we do know we're uh, we're running a little bit long on this pod but just we're, a tad we're having a good time <laughs> so and I hope you guys are enjoying the depth of discussion Andy so he's played by Emilio Estevez <laughs> like isn't he a sheen anyway um it was it was so enlightening to me when I realized that he was Charlie Sheen's brother <laughs> like and someone was like oh you didn't know that no no but like but like once you made the connection yeah like, oh, this makes so much more sense so uh, so Andy's he's a guilt-ridden, clean-cut athlete. Mm. So, what's your poison? He's got status from his success as a wrestler. He sees himself on the same plane as Claire. And Claire even mentions that later on, I think. Yeah. Over the course of the day, he plays a variety of roles. So Amy, I was thinking about, like, he's defending Claire, mm -hmm. right? The protector. 
he physically stands up to Bender's bullying. Like he, he like hmm, he know, pins him on the floor. Pins him on the floor, right? And he reaches out to Allison hmm. when she's upset, and to Brian, he's both. He's, he's kind of like a brother. It's like hmm. friendly, but also dismissive. Yeah, like a big brother. Like a big brother. Yeah. It becomes clear that his main difficulties are to do with his dad, right? Pressure from his dad and also from his coach. And Allison calls it and says, "You know, you can't think for yourself." And he seems strong, but his identity is fragile, right? And he he's playing these roles and they seem to be from somebody else, mm. mainly his dad, obviously, or what his peers want or to, to protect his social status or mm. something. He's the only one that looks comfortable about being in detention, mm. right? He, he knows he belongs there. Yeah, he's not trying to push back against being in detention. Nope. I'm here today because... Uh because my coach and my father don't want me to blow my ride. So I get treated differently because uh, coach thinks I'm a winner. So does my old man. I'm not a winner because I want to be one. I'm a winner because I got strength and speed. Kind of like a racehorse. It's about how involved I am in what's happening to me. Yeah. That's very interesting. Now, why don't you tell me why you're really in here? Forget it. So I phoned a friend, Michael Inglis, friend of the show. He's a sports psychologist who um, is from the Mind Room, and he works with uh, professional footballers, professional sports players. We've done two episodes with him. So you were cheating on your homework. Uh, (laughs) I view it as referencing. Sure, Um, sure. So if you're interested in sports psychology, check out those episodes with Michael. He said to me, goes to the athlete identity. So if you rely on someone's athlete identity too strongly, or in this case, it's the way he tries to win his father's love, it then becomes really unhealthy, Mm. right? It it sort of ends up being this thing that you have to do. And if you don't do it, then you lose everything. And then you're striving to do something. And then you lose interest in your sport, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's unhelpful for your relationships, but also unhelpful in terms of your sporting progress, right? And so what you want to do is you want to find other things that you're good at, passion at, that you enjoy to balance your esteem. Michael talked about in one of the pods that we did where there was a a young guy who, you know, they got him to start skateboarding Mm -hmm. because he was interested in that. Yeah. Uh, And which has obviously caused a bit of a problem with their club because they're like, (laughs) you know, we don't want you to be skateboarding. You can break your arm (laughs) and miss a match or whatever. So Andy, I think he's similar to Brian and Claire. Like if you lose the main thing, Mm -hmm. you knock out that strut, you got nothing. Practically, I'd be spending time in therapy talking about non-sport stuff, social, family, school, activities, not sport. Modern day, are we talking about computer games, Mm. television? Like with Claire and the social thing, I think you get pushback from the system around him. So the dad and the coach. So I think you'd need to get them on board at probably like a joint session or like conversations with them. And I'd be really interested to learn about his mum. Yeah. So I always think about like doing a family tree with somebody Mm. and I'm always interested in who they talk about and who they don't. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's really interesting. You know, could we build up that nurturing aspect if she's on the scene? While this is important, there's a deeper issue of the relationship with his dad that needs to be resolved and Andy's guilt and shame over the actions that led to his detention. So I'm going to play his monologue. It's quite long, Mm. but it's a monologue that I think you would, you often hear in therapy. And the bizarre thing is, 
and I did it for my old man. I tortured this poor kid because I wanted him to think that I was cool. He's always going off about, you know, when he was in school, all the wild things he used to do. And I got the feeling that he was disappointed that I never cut loose on anyone, right? So I'm, I'm sitting in the locker room and I'm taping up my knee. And Larry's undressing a couple lockers down from me. And he's kind of, he's kind of skinny, weak. And I started thinking about my father and his attitudes about, about weakness. And the next thing I knew, I, I jumped on top of him and, and started wailing on him. And my friends, they just laughed and cheered me on. And afterwards, when I was sitting in, in, in Vernon's office, all I could think about was Larry's father and Larry having to go home and, and explain what happened to him. And the humiliation, fucking humiliation he must have felt. It must have been unreal. I mean, how do, you, how do you apologize for something like that? There's no way. It's all because of me and my old man. God, I fucking hate him. He's like this, he's like this mindless machine that I can't even relate to anymore. Andrew, you've got to be number one. I won't tolerate any losers in this family. Your intensity is for shit. Win, win, win. You son of a bitch. You know, sometimes I wish my knee would give and I wouldn't be able to wrestle anymore. And he could forget all about me. It's always a really heavy clip, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's really intense. What do you like about it or what, what are your thoughts with it? I feel like it really shows the shame that he feels. It really taps into that and how vulnerable he is with these people who he doesn't actually know that well, sharing that shame and mm. vulnerability with them. Yeah, but see, I think that that's because he knows he won't see him. Yeah. Again. Yeah, there's no social risk apart from Claire. Yeah. How do you respond when clients have guilt and shame? Uh, it's, it's all about hearing it. Mm. So understanding it, helping him sit with it, mm-hmm. so not to dismiss it. So classic response to a negative emotion that someone has is someone goes, no, 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 you're, you're fine. Yeah. You're fine, which is invalidating. Mm. Just so, causes the emotion to intensify. Yeah, and, 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 and creates a breach between you and the person. Mm. So 
the aim would be to make it not all consuming so that he doesn't get into a pattern of them being overwhelmed and then him blocking them, blocking mm. his emotions, avoiding his emotions further and then down the track leading into a pattern of being only angry, you know, angry intensity as a way of release mm. vis-a-vis the, the vice principal, yeah. right? So giving him some strategies to help calm if needed, maintain positive activities so that he doesn't withdraw. Mm. Okay, just because you've done this thing and you feel bad about it does not mean that you can stop doing sport mm. or that you can stop doing things. These are important things that you need to do. You are more than just this moment. Mm. I think you remarked to me it's the first time he's done it. Yeah. Like it's a, so Bender is abusive mm. to others. It's a pattern. Whereas yeah. this is a extreme event. And it's got almost a dissociative edge to it where he kind of goes, I you know, all of a sudden I was doing this thing. It's like he hasn't he hasn't planned it. It's just this thing that's happened that he can't quite understand that's yeah. kind of separate I don't, from I don't him. think it was dissociative but I think but you but know there, what I mean that yeah, kind of disconnection yeah there's an element of just like I found myself doing something mm. you'd want to explore it I don't really think it from him but you know some people might go I did this thing and I and have this anxiety of like I'm going to turn bad mm. I don't I don't I don't get that vibe from him but I'd want to check it out I think he's worried about turning into his dad yeah so what I want to do is empty chair <laughs> yep so empty chair is, it, it's, it seems so basic, but it's basically you get an empty chair and then get him to do empty chair to his dad, mm. right? So that would be like getting him to, because he talks about he, how he hates his dad and I'd be getting him to explain to his dad what happened mm. or how he feels about stuff or get him to explain to him, say, you know, dad, I, I think I kind of did that thing because you're always pressuring me. Mm. And then what you do as a therapist, you'd be like, Okay, you're angry with him? Yeah. So, okay. So, I want you to say, you know, I'm angry with you, Dad. You get, and they, they do it and go, okay, I want you to do it 15% more angry. Yeah. I want to, I want to hear that anger. Mm. Right. And, you, and what you do is you stand behind them to the side and then you coach them. Yeah. And because what you're doing is it's about emotional expression and getting it out. Mm. And then that becomes fodder for therapy. Mm. You know, he's angry. He's been humiliated by his dad. He's been told he's worthless. He's neglected. He wants to pressure off. Mm. So and then that might lead to assertiveness training with his dad or family work mm. to address the relationship. You know, dad's got problems. Yeah, dad's putting pressure on his son. There's mm. something going on there. Once he's built up enough, I'd be wanting to do empty chair with himself. Mm-hmm. So, putting himself in the chair and getting him to be compassionate. So, if he was an adult client, what I would do is a, ver- a version of empty chair where you would have talk about that you have a healthy adult mode, you have a vulnerable child mode, and you have a demanding and critical parent mode. And so what you would do is you would get them to sit in one chair and act as the 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 critical part of themselves. Mm. Like, oh you know, you know, I shouldn't have done this, blah 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 blah, you know, like I should be doing all these things, all the shoulds and the mm. demanding bits. And then you'd get them to switch chairs and say you know you're being a bit mean to the vulnerable part of yourself yeah and you would go backwards and forwards and you would get that that critical part to back down and then you'd get them in the healthy adult chair to talk to the the vulnerable child mode and parent that part Mm. and soothe so that would be a a schema therapy Mm. focused way i think with with this young man talking about things in an abstract way he could quite easily do that yeah but I think also giving a structure so that the emotions were able to be contained and mm. soothed. Mm. 
you know, he feels bad about what he's done. He d- he's done something pretty bad. Yeah. I don't actually think he's going to keep doing it. No. If you address the the issue. Hmm. But I think having the coach on board and, and the dad on board is like, I'm going to help him improve his stuff, hmm. but other things are going to need to change. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, well, no, he's just going to do things. It's like, as I said to somebody last week, if you want change, you have to, you have to make change. Hmm. Yeah. And then you just don't say anything. <laughs> um, and that usually gets the point across. Yeah. So last one. Nice. Last one, Brian. Brian. Well, what I had said was I'm in a math club, uh, the Latin club and the physics club. Physics club. Anthony Michael Hall. That is right. So Brian is the youngest of the teens, arrives dressed in really neat, clean clothes. He's dropped off by his mum and his sister. He brings along a lunch that's prepared by his mum. He's kind of got this vibe that on the surface it looks like he's sort of well looked after. He's the quietest of the boys and he speaks about being a member of the math, Latin and physics clubs. He's friends with the janitor and he wants the approval of the other kids in detention. Brian's interactions with the vice principal are characterised by this sort of cloying politeness and compliance. He's the most reluctant to break any rules and he's the only teenager who considers the assigned essay at all. Despite this, as the day progresses, he's able to have genuine interactions with the others, muck around, take some risks. You know, he smokes weed with Bender and Claire. Of all of the teens, Brian, I think, is the one who's most likely to be referred to the school psychologist if it was set in the current time. And so we're going to play a clip now where it describes why he's in detention. You think I don't understand pressure, Claire? Well, fuck you. Fuck you. I'm here today. Do you? I'm here because Mr. Ryan found a gun in the locker. Why'd you have a gun in your locker? I tried. Let me pull a fucking trunk on it's the light's supposed to go on it can go on i mean what's the gun for brian just forget it you brought it up man i can't have an f i can't have it i know my parents can't have it Even if I ace the rest of the semester, I'm still only a B. Everything's ruined for me. Brian. Brian. Considering my options, you know? No, killing yourself is not an option. Well, I didn't do it, did I? No, I don't think so. It was a handgun? No, it was a flare gun. Went off in my locker. What's interesting about that is that Bender, the cut to Bender, and he, Bender's looking confused. He's like, mm. oh my God. Like, wow, someone's someone else hurts, but like for a reason that I've never thought of. Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I feel like he's almost connecting or, ref, or sort of reflecting back on earlier, you know, before he acts out his family home life, he acts out what he thinks Brian's is. And it's you know, sickly, sweet, supportive parents who are looking after Brian. And I feel like there's there's sort of like a, hang on a minute, this isn't what 
it seems. Mm. And I think they all look quite shocked in a way because yeah. they all think that, you know, his home life must be okay. Mm. Thing, it looks like things are okay. And so I think with watching this, the idea that a kid would be sent to detention for bringing a flare gun to school, even if you didn't know the intent, just seems ludicrous to me now as a child psychologist. It sort of feels like uh, the kind of time when absolutely that kid would be sent to the school psychologist instead. Because mm. um, what happens is the flare gun went off in his, in his locker and yeah. blew up the locker. Exactly. So he's, so he's obviously got in trouble for damaging school property. Mm. But if you, you know, if you heard about a bright kid who's getting straight A's and then they brought a flare gun to school, perhaps as well, you would think of it differently than if a kid like Bender mm. brought a flare gun to school. You'd kind of go, oh, what was he going to be up to? But for Brian to do that, you'd have to assume that he was going to do something dangerous yeah. um, or at least want to check that out. Um, so I think that, you know, if I was to see him as a psychologist, it would be because of that. And I'd be wanting to very like, gently but firmly assess what was going on and find out from him about those thoughts that he'd had and mm. about, you know, how long they'd been going on about the risk. I think I, you know, he kind of laughs along with them about how ridiculous it is that he's brought it and you kind of get the vibe that he's not thinking about it anymore. Mm. But I would really want to check that out and convey to him that I was taking it seriously. Mm. You know, that his pain wasn't something to be dismissed as trivial. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, the approach I intuitively think about is saying, saying, okay, that sounds serious. Okay, so you're telling me it's the thoughts about ending your life have passed. Mm. That's good. But just so you know, like, I'm going to ask you about this again. Mm. I hope that's okay. It might be a bit frustrating for you. But, you know, I just want to take it seriously. And I'm probably going to ask you a few times and... You're just going to have to put up with that. Yeah. I hope that's okay. Just yeah. because I, I just need to make sure that everyone... You know, one of my jobs is to make sure that people are safe. Mm. And, you know, if you do have these things, then this is a place where you can actually yeah. talk about it. Yeah, because you'd want to have it as an open opportunity yeah. for him to talk about it at any given time if it was to come up again. Yeah. I think for Brian, I've got a lot of questions about what's underneath that. You know, I've got questions about who is he outside of someone who gets good grades what other attributes does he think he has how else does he feel about himself he he mentions at one point about looking down on himself and not liking the person that he sees mm. and I'd want to know more about about that about how he sees himself I think therapeutically it would be Brian would be one of those kids who it would be very easy to assign a bunch of CBT tasks that he'd go off and complete diligently and come back and he wouldn't actually be emotionally challenged or engaged in the material. Mm. He'd be the so-called good client. Well, he's got elements of obsessive compulsive yeah. personality disorder, so OCPD. Mm. And he's uh, perfectionistic. Yeah, so and per so that's that kind of personality thing of being perfectionist in something. And so they, they go off and do the, do the mm. homework properly. Yeah. So, I mean, if you got them off to do the homework properly, then you, oh, my thing would be, I'd then shit stir. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, and, and like, oh, wow, geez, you did that. Uh, you did that. You, you filled out the sheet. No yeah. one ever does that for me. Yeah. Jeez, your handwriting's good. Yeah. You know, you kind yeah. of like, you know, have an emotional, and like try and trigger an emotional response to the homework. Yeah. Because, yeah, it really, I think that often with kids like this, it's really easy to kind of go, oh, wow, someone's done the homework. They never do the homework and then actually miss the fact <laughs> Oh, that I'm totally baffled when someone does the homework. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, like actually, I actually own it in therapy. I'm like, oh, um, <laughs> not really sure. I'm no. Uh, okay, you filled out the sheet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, w- what would you be wanting to do with this chap? So, I'd be wanting to build up the stuff outside academics, a little mm. bit like what we've talked about with Andy and Claire of building up, you know, helping him to feel more like a well-rounded kind of person. It seems that he's got connections. He's I've got a bit to talk about about his interpersonal style, which I think is really flexible. I think he's got a way of connecting with people, even if it's a bit clumsy sometimes. But I think building up connections with other people, building up warmth, because mm. the interaction you see with his mum isn't particularly warm. No. And so, uh, What I thought with him is that he... Sorry, excuse me for interrupting, mm. but he's, he uses his intelligence... Yeah to to interact with people mm. you know he's like okay you know actually it's seven seven weeks of detention yeah. plus the one where blah, blah, blah. like yeah. he's also a bit of a shit stirrer yeah. which i i quite like yeah. and i'd be interested in playing up into that in therapy you can see that he uses his intelligence to engage with people mm. which is a again a, a source of a strength yeah but also, also he needs to realize that people like him and value him not just because he's smart yeah, and I think actually what's interesting about his interactions with the others and what's potentially fodder for change in what you see is times like when he's high with them and he's giggling like a kid and he's telling jokes and he's impersonating people and whatever and he's sort of, he's more relaxed. I'm not suggesting that he should get high all the time. No. But there's something there about that there's a playfulness. There's a playfulness, that, a childlike needs, yeah. thing. And I don't think that he's had many opportunities to be a kid. Yeah. And so I'd want to or help. he needs more of them now. Yeah. I'd and want him to build up opportunities to have fun yeah. and to do things that were playful. Yeah, because the other side to that coin mm. is that I see his emotional reactions through the film of mm. trying to appease people. Yeah. Like they're trying to Bender and Andy get into an argument. He tries to calm them yeah. down with some intelligent stuff. He tries to engage the principal in, in intelligent stuff. So the other other side of the coin there, I reckon, Amy, mm. is that he... So there's the playfulness that you'd be wanting to think because what you see him try to be quite serious mm. with a lot of people. Like, you know, he tries to engage people on an intelligent level. There's just a bit that's popped into my head that yeah, I was thinking, you know, is there an exception to when they're stoned when you see the playfulness? Right at the start, he pretends that he's a walrus with the pen <laughs> in his mouth. Yeah. Like, like it is, it is there. It's yeah. close to the surface, but that intellectual. Yeah. This is the way I'm going to function in the world. Yeah. Well, this is the way it's been rewarded in yeah. my world, yeah. and I think you'd be wanting to reward it differently. Yeah. yeah. And getting the parents to buy in on that would probably be challenging, because I can imagine that they wouldn't want him doing stuff out of school time that wasn't studying. Mm. I mean, his mum wants him to study in a detention where he's not supposed to be studying, which I think to me highlights that it's not about him being a good kid. It's about the grades specifically. And what's that about? Yeah, exactly. What's the meaning of that to his parents? What is it that if he doesn't get good grades, what does he fear might happen? So I think while I'd want to do some cognitive stuff and maybe some schema therapy, I'd really want to encourage him to feel his emotions and to well, get schema, some fun that's stuff. Schema therapy though, isn't it? Yeah. But like, you know, I'd want to lean I think that would be more challenging for him than doing the classic CBT cognitive side of things. I think the behavioural part of CBT 
would be quite good for him. But so the behavioural side would be like behaviour scheduling stuff like that. So or more the sort of enjoyable activities, behavioural yeah, activities, that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah. I I think it wouldn't actually be that hard to trigger emotions with him in session. Yeah, and then you'd be wanting to extend it. E- extend it. So like. Schema therapy would talk about that any session that a client is in a detached protector mode mm. after an assessment session is a waste of a session. Mm. So basically what that means in English is any therapy session where your emotions as a client are not activated mm. positively or negatively. Yeah. Right. It's a waste. It's a waste of a therapy session. And I think for him, it'd be about having them activated. Yeah. And I don't actually don't think it'd be that hard. No, I don't think so either. So. I think it would be harder for him to activate those outside of session than in session. Yeah, but um, I think because but, of the constraints of. But I think therapy would be the, the playground, mm. and then he'd be able to go off and do it. Yeah, yeah. I think like get him to learn musical instrument. Yeah, you know, like rock and roll, something that would yeah. be fun. Mm. What do you think about? So at the end, yeah, he kind of gets bullied into doing the essay. For he does. Everyone. Yeah. And I always, I just always think about this moment where none of them do the thousand word essay. Are they all just going to get detention again? <laughs> like, yeah, that's always the thing. Like the the principal who's got anger issues and control issues is just going to accept their one letter. And he's, like, just, and he's just reading it there. They've all just left. Yeah. It's like, so there is no way that you've been in detention all day that you then just leave. Yeah. You'd be waiting for that teacher to come back anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no way that he would just be cool with that. Yeah, he does get pressured into doing the letter and we, we want to finish off with that letter that he writes because it's not so much a letter, uh, an essay is a letter in the end. Um, he addresses it to the principal. And I was thinking about it, why it's him that writes that letter. You know, it makes he makes pretty genuine connections with each one of them in a more even way than perhaps what the others do. The others, there's more of a dyad kind of stuff yeah. happening. Whereas... Brian at different points makes a genuine connection with most of them. I think that there are times when he blurts stuff out a little bit too bluntly. Like his tone is soft, but the content of it is blunt. So I'm thinking about, say, like when Alison tries to speak to them both and he sort of does a stage whisper off to the side to mm. Andy. It's He's trying to show that he's understood what's going on and go, actually, I think things might be bad, but he does it in a way that's clumsy and sort of misses mm. the mark a little bit. See, I, I think I think of him as a, an older brother, mm. right? But in this setting, he's the youngest one. Yeah. And his story across the film is one of development. Yeah. And, and so whereas the others are about exposing emotions and kind of working out what's wrong with them, he knows what's wrong with him. Hmm. But where his growth as an individual is having different emotions mm. and, and being exposed to them and learning how to cope with them mm. versus I think some of the other ones where they're like, this is a problematic emotion that needs to be addressed. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think his, his need to be, he needs to learn how to sit with all of them. And like, flexibly. Yeah. No, not just sort of sit with. in a numb way, mm. like, which is, I think, which is just like the. Yeah. Contained rigidity kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Which is the classic OCPD. Exactly. Thing. Final thoughts? We, could, we talked a lot longer than I think we thought we would. Yep. So I hope you guys have enjoyed us giving insight into how we would quickly formulate around someone, but how we would go about attacking the problems, engaging people and kind of assessing and stuff like that. Beginning that process. Yeah. What, what What's interesting is you and I are quite different therapists, mm. but I think there's a commonality here of 
most of them they need they need rapport mm. and relationship and the specific modalities probably are less important mm. with this group i think which is often the way and i think it's perhaps you know it's often the way for anyone who goes to see a therapist but it particularly rises to the top with adolescents and kids i think i think they they show it a little bit more sometimes than adults mm. do um, adults come often with a specific problem or a specific issue presuming mm. they've sought out therapy themselves whereas i feel like the relationship side of things and the need for warmth and stability and stuff like that is often the common theme adolescence is this difficult time mm. and that's why teen films i mean john hughes was the first one to do proper teen films really yeah but that's why this film and other films are so powerful and classic status mm. because it shows a time that we've all been through that where we've got to kind of work stuff out and mm. it's difficult yeah and uh i think to be a therapist to help someone at that time is a pretty mm. powerful thing it is yeah if you like the show twoshringspod.com or you can rate and review us on apple podcasts wherever you like to listen to your podcasts if you like the show, tell someone about us, or you can contact us at tushingspod at gmail.com. Yeah, so shall we finish off with his letter? Yeah. This is how he signs it off. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong, but we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are, and we see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Don't